0: This morning we are back in Haggai chapter 2, we're going to be looking at Haggai's third vision that we see, um, beginning in verse 12, uh, and I would now just like to read that in its entirety, Haggai chapter 2, verse, excuse me, verse 10 through verse 19. "...on the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord, came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches his fold fold bread or stew or wine or any other kind of food, does it become holy?" The priests answered and said, "...no." And then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. And then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew, with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive oil have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is God's word. God... I confess this morning, I come and open your word and teach these people as a man with unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. And I am so cognizant, so aware of my own insecurities and ways that I fall short. And I pray that you would take my words, that you would mold this stammering tongue and move in this place by your spirit that you would cleanse me, and by the reading of your word, and by studying it, we would be made holy as well. I pray that you would do that in a miraculous, awesome, glorifying way this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I um, I like words. <laughs> I like learning words. I like uh, learning where words came from and kind of what they're etymology is, and ooh, that's an interesting construction, and uh, uh, I really like living cross-culturally where there's another language involved, and I'm uh, learning all sorts of different ways that things are expressed in French. Um, I, I, I learned this particularly last week, my Francophone neighbors uh, threw a block party, um, and uh, we, we went and we uh, participated and met our neighbors, and my French is okay. Uh, I was doing all right. Uh, I thought I was making some good headway, and I was following along, and I knew what was going on, uh, and then one of my neighbors turned to me, and he asked, and would your children like to eat some of Daddy's beard? I'm sorry, what? Uh, I, I, I was very confused. I, quite, quite honestly, I thought to myself, what kind of facial hair-consuming neighborhood cult have we stumbled into? <clears throat> But really, when you think about it, calling cotton candy daddy's beard makes just as much sense, or candy floss, or something like that. Oh, okay, all right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a different way of saying it. Um, when we lived in Germany, we had not studied any German at all before moving to Germany, um, and the Germans have a, a, a knack for this. There's a word for that in German. Whatever you're thinking, whatever concept you have, oh yeah, the Germans have a word for that. And I was recently introduced to this German word, and I thought, oh, this is perfect. This word, Verschlimbesern, it means to make something worse by trying to make it better. (laughs) To try to improve something, but then to not improve it, to, to make it worse. Do you know this? Have you felt this? Have you ever tried to clean something up, but you just make a bigger mess? I have four children and a dog. I know this very well, okay? And I am, I am not even, you know, I'm not the most dexterous guy to begin with, and there are times when I am genuinely, like, I'm trying to, how I am trying to bring a solution here, and onlookers are like, just, just stop, please. Like, <laughs> you're just making this so much worse. And this idea of everything that we do to try and clean something up just making it worse, I'd like you to have that idea in mind. I think this is in part kind of the idea that Haggai wanted to have the priests in mind when he gives them this little pod in his third vision in Haggai chapter 2. The first thing that we see in verse 10 is the same thing that we saw in the previous two visions, letting you know exactly when this is happening. The whole book starts in late August. About a month later, we have an update. About a month later, in October, we have an update. And finally, we have this one, which comes on December 18th, 520 BC. So we know exactly when this is, and it's a few months into the rebuilding effort That the remnants have started since coming back from persia and are here now in the land of judah again and in verse 11 we see who the audience is in previous weeks i kind of hinted at this in the previous visions these are prophecies meant for everyone for all the people here this is very specifically for the priests this is for the priestly order of Levites, the people under Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who have come and are working in the temple, the people who are tasked with overseeing the sort of functions, the nuts and bolts of the worship in the soon-to-be-newly-built temple. And then we have, in verses 12 and 13, this sort of pop quiz that happens. Um, And I have I have realized now I've I've gotten ahead of myself and and haven't caught up with my slides as I do often because I'm not looking at my notes as well as I should be, Um, but just wanted to kind of give a quick recap uh, of of why these exiles are here in the first place because they have been called back to Judah and we started off by talking about the return and the decree of Cyrus and that exile was never meant to be the end of the story. And as they let that work stall out, and they shelved this project for 15 years. Uh, Chapter 1 comes in, and Haggai is kind of very gently reminding them that they need to get back on this project, because sometimes, instead of a scolding, we just need a gentle nudge. And in chapter 2, we started looking at this idea that it is not anything because of the temple or the people or the programs associated with it that make it wonderful, it is because it is God's presence that makes his house great, and the people needed reminding of that, and it is the same thing for here now in our community of faith. It is only God's presence that makes this a great community of faith. And this morning, I want you to keep in mind this big idea that God alone makes, clean, makes unclean things clean. And so that is where we are at, trying to get the priests to understand this big idea as we look at Haggai, when Haggai poses this question to them. And there are these two questions that kind of play on Old Testament Levitical law. And he asked them, hey, if you're carrying meat in the fold of your garment, and this is meat that has been part of an offering, not a burnt offering which would come and be burnt whole and the smoke rises up as an act of praise towards God, but a guilt offering or a sin offering. There are certain kind of uh, rules and regulations and instruction given to them uh, as to how they would do this. And part of that is they cut off the fat and some of the other parts and they burn that on the altar. And there is some of the choice meat that is there meant for the priest to take and to distribute and to help. And so that is holy meat and it is prepared in a very certain and prescribed manner. And what he's asking them is, if you, one of the priests, was carrying that in the fold of your garment, and you took that holy, that clean meat, and you touched it to some other meat, some oil or wine or something like that, would that then make that other meat holy? If I took this meat and I touched it to the McDonald's food or to one of Brad's pizzas, does that somehow make it a holy piece of food? And they say, no, that's that's not how that works, and he says, "Yeah, you're right. That's correct." And then he asks him, "Okay, what then, if someone who was unclean, maybe because they had touched a dead body, or because of certain times of the year, or illness, or like they have leprosy, or something like that, and they're unclean, and then they touch that holy meat, does that then make the holy meat unclean?" And they say. Yes, that is what happens. That's how that works. And so they're they're illustrating this idea of transmissibility, that cleanness kind of goes one way. And I'd love to see if we can show this and illustrate this a little bit. When we think about transmissibility, and I very unfortunately suspect that this crowd knows so much more about transmissibility in the last few years than you did before, um, because that's how that works, right? If somebody who has COVID sits next to somebody without COVID, it's not like the, the, the healthy person makes the sick person healthy. No, that's not how that works. The sick person makes the healthy person sick. Just this morning, we were praying for school starting and someone brought up, yeah, and the sickness that goes with it. Yeah, that's right. Because one person gets sick and then everyone is sick and then they come home and all of us are sick. Because that is how The laws of clean and unclean work. If something is made unclean, that unclean thing can't then become clean just by like, oh, what if we, does that make it clean? No, that doesn't make it clean. But what then if we take the unclean thing and we touch the clean thing, does that make it unclean? Yeah, it does. And there's no going, oh, uh, just kidding, pour it back, pour it back, no, undo, uh, escape. That's not how that works. And then this secondarily made unclean thing, if that touches something else, that's unclean too. And no matter what we do, no matter how we try to fix it, no, no, what if we make that clean it? No, that just made, <laughs> no matter what we do, it's just making the whole thing unclean. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's illustrating to them. He's saying, whatever you do with unclean hands as you touch it, it's going to make that thing unclean. And then he, pose, he, he sets this kind of general principle. Okay, so you understand the Levitical law. And then he gets specific. And he says, yeah, that's what's happening now. If you, priests, Levites, the people in charge, the people in leadership building this house of the Lord have unclean and corrupt hearts and hands, what do you think is going to happen to the temple you are building? Corrupt and unclean hands will build a corrupt and unclean temple. And he's giving them this warning, hey, look, you understand how this works. If you touch something that's clean, but you're unclean, you make that thing unclean. And if you, priests, Levites, leaders of the temple, have corrupt and arrogant and unclean hearts, guess what the temple is going to look like? And I wish that I could tell you that they heed this warning, that they go, oh, that makes total sense. And that they avoid... Corruption altogether. But that's not really what happens. In fact, if you think forward 500 years and more, even to the time of Jesus, some things are very, very wrong with this same temple that they're building. There is corruption, there is legalism, there is Pharisees and Sadducees who have taken the law, Torah, which means instruction, And treated it like it's some owner's manual, like some rule book that we have to follow every little bit and find all the loopholes to. And we're going to do whatever we can to kind of enrich ourselves and give ourselves more power. And rather than being a place where they are drawing people in to experience God's presence, they're doing the exact opposite. They're putting up these roadblocks. They're telling people, no, you can't be like that. You can't dress like that. You can't bring that offering Etc. Think about the maddest that Jesus is at people, flipping over tables in the courts. That's because what they have done is, oh, in the Old Testament law, in the Levitical law, you have to pay a certain amount in shekels. And what they've done is they've said, well, the shekel doesn't exist anymore, but we still have to follow the letter of the law. So we're going to take the Greek or the Roman drachma or whatever it is, and we're gonna. You have to come and exchange that into this now kind of fake currency, the shekel, in order to pay this temple currency. Do you think they gave them a fair rate? No. It's a way that they can earn a little bit extra on the margins. And in the same way, oh, you have to bring in this offering, this heifer, this bull, this pair of turtle doves, whatever it is, in order. Well, it has to be clean. We're gonna have people outside that inspect this and go. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. It's not clean enough. But we have some here that are clean that we can sell you at a little bit of a markup. It's like, have you ever been to a ball game where you're, you're trying to carry in this 68-cent bottle of water, and they're like, no, 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 you can't bring that in. Okay, I throw it away, and I walk 30 feet, and I can buy this same bottle of water for six bucks. That's what was going on in the temple. That's what made Jesus go, this is not how it's supposed to be, and he starts driving them out. And there was really bad corruption in the temple. In fact, you have priests who are in it basically so that they can make a little bit extra on the side. And if somebody has to come and show them their leprosy, and they go, oh no, it's not quite good enough, or you have to wash a little bit more, or you have to do this extra sacrifice... Maybe if they came from the right family or if they made the right temple donation, oh then, yes, of course, yeah, obviously you're clean now. And it's not even 500 years from this point of Haggai talking. If we look ahead just over 100 years to another prophet named Malachi, the whole book of Malachi is basically an indictment of this priestly class of people that have turned the temple hopelessly corrupt. They are just in a mess, and all throughout Malachi, he is giving them these indictments of all the corrupt things that you are doing in my temple, making it all dirty, unclean. And it comes to a head in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 of Malachi. Your words have been hard against us, says the Lord. Oh, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What's the point in our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? In other words, where's the money in it? What profit do we have if we follow it the way God intended it to? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. You have put the most arrogant, selfish, self-righteous people in charge. Of course the temple is going to look like this. Of course it's going to be unclean, because you have built it with unclean hands and unclean hearts, and it's going to be corrupt. Let's go back to Haggai here. As we see, Haggai continues this warning, and he kind of reminds them, if we look at verses uh, 15 through 17, of the, hey, hey, do you remember back over 15 years ago when we first started this whole business? Do you remember what life was like? Do you remember how you just couldn't get anywhere with your crop, with your produce, with it just seemed like the blessing was just dried up? This kind of harkens back to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, when um, after the entire law is given, way at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, Moses kind of lays out through, uh, God lays out through Moses and he says, look, if life looks like this and if you find blight and mildew and the grain is not producing and the wine is just not there enough, it's because you are not following my word. You're not obeying me. You are not listening to the way I have said you ought to live this way. But instead, you have the option to live the way that I want you to live. You have this opportunity to obey me, to let go of your arrogance. And that's the principal thing that Malachi was talking about. It is arrogance. It is thinking that we know better than God. And Haggai here is kind of saying the same thing to the people. Look, you've got an opportunity. And when you look around and you see, okay, life is not going so well, that should be a kind of check engine light on my obedience to God. But if things are going well, I need to acknowledge that's God. And in fact, he ends with this idea that from this day forward, I am going to bless you. And it makes you go, how? These are people that are hopelessly corrupt. These are people who are arrogant and self-righteous and in it for their own profit. And yet God is saying, I am going to bless you. Why? Because God alone makes unclean things clean. God has the power to cleanse us. It is not anything that we do, any magic set of rules that we can follow in the law that will make us clean. It is only by coming to God and asking Him to make us clean that we can get that way. So it begs the question, what is the opposite of arrogance? Humility. This is the key in coming to God and in asking him to make us clean. In saying, I have tried it my way, it's not going well for me. I need to let go of my way and acknowledge I want to do it your way, God. Please make me clean because only God can make unclean things clean. There's an excellent example of this earlier in scripture in the Prophets. There's a guy named Isaiah, and I hope that you all are familiar with this story. I, I, I expect many of you will find this very familiar. But in Isaiah, before Isaiah is called, he has this sort of vision where he goes to the throne room of heaven where he experiences God's holiness, God's perfect cleanness face-to-face. And his reaction is one that I think we need to look at and learn from. Let me read here in Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, and he said, Holy, 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 Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is face to face with God's perfect, awesome, incomparable holiness. And what is Isaiah's reaction to that? Let's look, verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response is to humble himself, to go, Oh, no, I am here face-to-face with God's glory, and I am filled with sin. I am something unclean, meeting God's holiness, which is perfectly and gloriously, awesomely clean. I'm going to die. And I think there is something in this notion, and as I was growing up, I, I thought about it in this way, and I think it was a little bit erroneous, where I had this mindset of, God cannot be in the presence of sin. This idea that my sin can't be in God's presence because it would somehow hurt God. It would mar God. It would somehow ruin God's perfect record. My sin would besmirch the perfect, holy, blameless, clean record of Almighty God. But here is the deal. That's not how that works. Our sin is no match for God's holiness. How arrogant of me is it to think that my sin could hurt God's glory? My uncleanness could somehow affect God's perfect cleanness. And this is what Isaiah experiences, verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, when my sin meets God's holiness, my sin doesn't stand a chance. It's gone. And the only choice that I have is, am I going to be arrogant, insist on my own way? Am I going to hold on to my sin and perish with it? Or am I going to allow God humbly to cleanse me of that sin? Because everything that I do makes things unclean. And no matter what I do, I will only make things unclean. Instead, what we need is something holy and completely different a God who alone makes unclean things clean. A God who cannot even be touched a little bit by my uncleanness, no matter what I do, it absolutely will never affect his holiness because God, and only God, I'm going to spill over here, (laughs) can make something that is unclean, clean. God himself, when we come before him humbly, says... No problem. That sin doesn't stand a chance. It's gone. And when we humble ourselves and allow him to do with us whatever he wants, it will get rid of our sin and it will make us clean and only God alone will make us unclean, clean again. There's one more example that I want to look at, uh, if you'll permit me. And I think from the New Testament, there's a really, really great example of this in the life of Jesus. If you look at Matthew chapter eight, I've said it before, I'll say it again, all of scripture points to Jesus. All of scripture prepares us to receive Jesus and understand that he is the promised Messiah. For centuries leading up to his birth, God is saying, I am preparing you to understand who Jesus is and what he is doing and what his ministry will be like. And this idea that God alone makes unclean things clean is evident in the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus. So let's go to Matthew chapter eight and I want to read just the first four verses. When he came down, he being Jesus from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. I don't know if you caught that. Maybe your version says bowed before him. Maybe your version says worshiped him. Even some of them spell it out for us. He humbled himself before Jesus. This leper had some options. He could do it, the priestly way, he could go to the temple, he could figure out, I have to have this seven-day waiting period, I have to wash the way the priest tells me I should wash, and then I have to go back, let him check me for the leprosy. If he says yes, great. If no, okay, I got to go back and start the whole process again. Maybe this leper doesn't have a very good standing. Maybe he knows I've got nothing. Oh man, that guy's going to be so harsh on me. I better just wait. But instead, he goes right to the source. He goes to Jesus. He kneels before him, and he says, let's continue. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And he knows it, because only God can make unclean things clean. Wait a second, but you're saying that about Jesus? Are you saying Jesus is God? Ding, 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 ding. You've got it. And he recognizes that. This leper recognizes this is God's long promised Messiah and he can make me clean if he wants to. And he goes and he humbles himself before Jesus and he says, if you want to, you can make me clean. And here's how Jesus responds. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed not ooh, it started to get better he didn't say let's patch that up and show it to me tomorrow let's see if it starts to make some improvement he didn't say go and wash and let's do the standard bit he didn't say look uh, wait eight to ten business days and you'll receive your authenticated and notarized uh uh, you know certificate of cleanness in the it's unclean get out of here No, immediately the leprosy was gone. Immediately he was cleansed because God and only God makes unclean things clean and Jesus is saying, just watch me. And I love this next part. Lest we think that this is some kind, well, Jesus makes us like spiritually clean, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a metaphor, right? Right? Jesus is going, no, 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 no. The cleanness that I'm giving you is good in all contexts. In fact, it is good enough for that priest. I want you to go and show him. I want you to watch his jaw hit the floor because of how clean you are now. Says Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. I dare that priest to look at you and find any hint of a trace of a blemish of leprosy left because I have said you're clean, and God alone makes unclean things clean. That's how that works in God's kingdom. So what? God and God alone makes unclean things clean. Do we really have that anymore? Do we have clean and unclean? I mentioned last week, we don't bring in bulls and goats and sheep and turtled up. We don't, we don't make these altars. We don't, we don't cleanse ourselves of this uncleanness. Does it still exist? The answer is yes. And I will give you a hint. You and I... Are people of unclean lips, you and I come from a people of unclean lips, both the personal sin and the communal sin, cultural sin. We have that the same way that Isaiah did. And if God does not change and God alone makes unclean things clean, what are we to do about here and now in our own context today? The first thing that I'd like to say is, Haggai's words are to the priests. They are to the order of people in charge of the temple, in charge of the worship. So there is a very real commendation. There is a very real warning given to those of us that are in ministry and are in leadership. Because we have the option. We can choose our position as one of gatekeeping, roadblocks, telling people you have to do X, Y, Z in order to really be holy. You have to do this, that, and the other and give this much money and then you'll receive God's blessing. Not that any church would ever be corrupt enough to do that. But woe to us, church leaders. Woe to us, those that are tasked with caring for God's people, if we make this some sort of profit if we make this some sort of game to enrich ourselves or to make us out to be some better class than the people that are coming through, what we ought to be doing is opening wide the doors and drawing people closer to the source that only will make them clean. God and only God can make unclean things clean. Second is for all of us. When you think about your life, and the unclean that you have in your life, you've got a couple of options. You can keep trying to deal with it yourself. You can keep trying to go at it your own way. You can keep arrogantly clinging to this notion, well, I got myself into this mess. I'm going to get myself out of it. Remember what we did. Ver If you keep trying to dig and dig and dig your way out of your sin and your uncleanness, you will only make things messier. You have to be able to humbly come before God, let go of your own way and say, get rid of that nonsense. I want to live the way you want me to live. I want to follow your law. I want to worship the way you prescribe to worship. I want to follow Jesus the way you prescribe because only you will be able to make me clean. Have you been trying to go at it your own way? Have you been trying to follow all of the rules in such a way that you get to say, yes, I did it myself, I'm self-righteous? There is a necessity for humility in God's kingdom. It's the reason that John says, if you humble yourself and ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all iniquity. It's the same reason that Paul, when he's talking to one of his churches and giving them some instruction about communion, he says, listen, the whole point of this is to humbly examine yourself. Humbly look at your life. Humbly say, God, search me and get rid of anything so that I can be made clean. And for those that don't, that process is judgment. That process is death because when we cling to our sin, when we cling to our arrogance, our self-righteousness, and our own way, God will deal with it and we will perish with it. But if we're able to let go of it and say, God, do with me whatever you see fit to make me clean, he will. Because God and God alone makes unclean things clean. God, we thank you so much for all the ways that you have made us clean. Not because we are so smart or so virtuous, or so righteous, but because you and you alone, God, have the power to take that which is broken and battered and dirty and unclean and make it something whole and new, resplendent, clothed in your glory, in a word, God, clean. And I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would remind us that you alone make us clean, that we would humbly come before you, confess our sins, and follow you. We thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. We pray that he would be glorified in all we do today.